Let us begin uh, with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, get into today's adult Sunday school lesson. Uh, There's notes up front here, and then there's notes all the way in the back. And so if you don't have any, feel free to grab uh, grab a copy. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you, and we thank you for the time that we have here together. Lord, thank you for a congregation of people who desire to know you, to to know your word, and to seek to rightly worship you in spirit and in truth. Um, God, we pray that this time would be uh, encouragement to all of our hearts. Um, Lord, we desire to worship you, and this is true, and we also desire to see others come to know you, to love you, to worship you as well. Uh, this is a wonderful treasure that we have found, not a treasure that we deserve, but a treasure that we have found that we have been graciously given in Christ. And so we pray that we would be um, willing and desirous to go and to tell others about this wonderful treasure that we have. And so prepare our hearts, help us as we look at some of these things, as we uh, read through and study some of these things. It would be used to equip us, the equipping of your saints here, uh, as they go out into the world, into their jobs, into the uh, neighborhoods and their families, <clears throat> that some of these things would be of use to them uh, in conversations, in, uh, across the table, uh, having a coffee with someone in the car, wherever it may be, Lord, that, that these things would be beneficial, that it would not merely be uh, theoretical knowledge that we are gathering, but rather it would be used for your honor and glory as we seek to tell others of our Savior. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that it would be beneficial to your saints, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. I'm not feeling good about today because uh, you have 11 pages of notes, and yes, last week we covered about a page and a half, and so... It's not looking good, but we will endeavor to work as fast and as quickly as possible. And um, uh, as we stated at the beginning, um, if you see in your notes, uh, I have written there a short Christian primer of apologetics and polemics. And so the point of this study is to uh, hopefully, uh, this will be a supplemental knowledge that will uh, increase your ability, your confidence as you speak and share the gospel with others. Um, We're looking at uh, Mormons, Islam, uh, of course Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, and atheists. atheists. And so um, the the point of this study of apologetics and polemics is to help us feel a bit more prepared in conversation as we dialogue with uh, these people, these very real people that are our friends and our neighbors. And so, as I've mentioned before, um, you know, there's been times in my life where I'm looking at a person that I know, oh, I know what this guy believes because of, you know, what he's wearing or because of the sign that he's holding, but I'm not really sure what all his theology entails. I'm a little afraid to engage him, and so I'm just going to walk away, whereas with others, I would say, oh, I know exactly what this guy believes, and I feel prepared in being able to give an answer uh, for the gospel uh, to this person or these people, and so these are just some, uh, hopefully, some things that we can put away in our brain, um, some uh, things that will be of use and benefit to us later on in life, maybe even tomorrow, who knows, Uh, but that would be uh, a benefit to you in sharing the gospel with those of other faith. And so what we want to do in this conversation, in this study, is not to straw man uh, the other person's position. If we say, oh, well, this guy's a Muslim, which means he just wants to blow up, you know, our church. But that's, that's you know, that's a straw man. That's, that's not at all what a majority of Muslims would believe. And so being able to actually uh, steel man their position to have a, a good understanding of what their faith actually entails and being able to have a, a good and logical and reasonable dialogue uh, concerning uh, 
uh, their faith and our faith. And so uh, hopefully, again, this will just be a, a beneficial study for, for all of us. <clears throat> and the last caveat is that, of course, so many more things could be said. And so last week we discussed Islam briefly, and there's a hundred other things. <laughs> there's many, 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 many more hours that we could have spent studying many different aspects of Islam uh, and Islamic practice and, and so many other things, but we're just covering a few things, a few uh, important things, but as always, there are many more things that could be covered. And so this is by no means an exhaustive study. This is um, just a, a brief, brief study. And so with all of that said, let's get back into Mormonism. Uh, we had just briefly gone over the history of Mormonism, and uh, there, page number two, uh, halfway in, um, we were looking at Mormonism. Last week, did we discuss the brief history of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, how he got his revelations. Uh, we talked briefly about uh, the key, uh, uh, starting with the key doctrines, first of all, being their sacred writings, the books which they uh, hold dear to. And then we were just getting into their understanding of God, because if you remember, we said that Mormons, they have, the, they have a very, very similar vocabulary to you and I, as Christians, uh, their vocabulary, they'll talk about the grace of God, they'll talk about uh, the Heavenly Father, they'll talk about Jesus, they'll talk about heaven, they'll, they'll say many things that you and I would agree with, and you can almost share the gospel, I, I mean, I've done it before, You've, I've shared the gospel with a, a Mormon, and they're like, yeah, we believe that too, and I'm like, oh, I know you don't, but I just, I don't know, I, I don't know how. And, and so you can, uh, we, have, we have the same dictionary, with the same words, but the gloss is, is different. And so we were starting to talk about uh, God the Father, their understanding of God the Father. Uh, and there, I believe in your notes, we had written down uh, a quote from Joseph Smith. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. And so Joseph Smith is refuting the idea that God has been God for all eternity. He's like, no, no, no. That's what we've all thought and believed, but in reality, that is not true. I'm going to refute that idea. I'm going to take away the veil so that you may see these are incomprehensible ideas to some, but they are simple. <clears throat> he, referring to the Father, Heavenly Father, was once a man like us, yea, that God the Father of us all dwelt on an earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did, and I will show it from the Bible. And he goes on in another place uh, to say God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. And so in Mormon theology, again, not something that we are trying to just say like, oh, you know, Mormons are sillies because they believe making a straw man of, of some sort of theology, but actually in their books, in their own theology, is this teaching that the Heavenly Father, God the Father, the eternal God in which we worship, was actually once a man, just as you and I here on this earth are. So he was once a sinful person, uh, walking around in a world, and he got to the point and the place where he was able to become an exalted God. And so if you're a good Mormon, you too will be able to get to that place. <clears throat> and so, uh, again, when you are speaking to a Mormon and you start talking about how uh, God loves us and how the, the Father sent his son to die for you and the Mormon is nodding his head saying, yes, 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 in reality, there's a huge gap between what you're saying and what they are hearing. And so we want to be uh, uh, understanding of this and be able to uh, talk about this, and we'll look at that here in just a moment when we speak of uh, point C there, which is how to share the gospel with the Mormon. So briefly what we're doing now is just looking through some of the key doctrines that they teach, which of course would be very different uh, from what you and I would believe as, as, as Baptists. So uh, thirdly there, we have Jesus and Lucifer. 
just very briefly, uh, Jesus and Lucifer are also spirit children, just like you and I are. So technically in Mormon theology, all of us are spirit children. Jesus, Lucifer, all of us, uh, we come from the same place. We are all the exact same. But Jesus was the first spirit child, and he was the best. And Lucifer was the jealous younger brother who wanted the preeminence of Jesus. And so there was this... um, fight and pride and all of these things that happened within the heart of Lucifer. And so Lucifer was sent down from heaven because of that. And so Mormon theology would teach that Jesus is not uh, the divine triune God, member of the triune God, but rather he is the spirit brother of Lucifer and you and I. Uh, fourthly there, salvation. Uh, <clears throat> if you read uh, 2 Nephi 25-23, uh, 2 Nephi is one of the books in the book of Mormon. Um, It says, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. And you and I say, oh, that's good. That's good. After all we can do, finishes 2 Nephi. So by grace you are saved. After everything else that you've done and tried and worked to do. And so salvation within Mormon theology When you say, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith, the Mormon says, yes, absolutely, it's good. But if you let them continue to speak, they will add on, well, yeah, and you have to do this, that, and the other. You know, you have to be baptized in the temple. You have to do this and this and this. And so there are some prerequisites to uh, salvation by grace through faith. And so uh, really, they would not claim that they have a works-based salvation for the most part, but it is implied in their texts and it is implied in their theology. And so salvation is not by grace through faith, but it is a works-based salvation. And then, of course, many other things, uh, just adding that on there, there's lots of other things that we could talk about, uh, different things to do with the Mormon temple and the leadership and the the modern-day prophets and and other things, but not going to get into all of those things. What we want to really spend a little bit more time in is how to share the gospel with a Mormon, because it's good to have an understanding of what the Mormon believes it's good to have the understanding of what the Muslim or the Jehovah Witness believes, but what you and I want to be able to do is be able to interact with them well in sharing the gospel. And so if you're trying to talk to a Muslim and you're starting with, well, you need to believe that there is a God, that's not the place to start with a Muslim. The Muslim already believes that there is a God. That's not a problem. If you're speaking to an atheist, that's where you have to start. <laughs> well, there is a God. And so we want to know where is it that you and I should start in our conversation of sharing the gospel with any one of these, and of course there are many others. So, focus on monotheism. Point number one there, focus on monotheism. Uh, In LDS theology, or Latter-day Saints, Mormons, however you want to refer to them, though they would often deny it, they are polytheistic. Because any number of us can go on to become good Mormons and be exalted just like God the Father was exalted, and be the God of our own universe. And so any one of us can get to the place where God the Father is right now. And so in reality, even though oftentimes they don't want to, admit they are polytheistic, they are, and they will, they will admit to it. Um, you know, I've heard different Mormons say like, well, yeah, I mean, who knows how many gods there are out there, but we're just talking about our universe right here. There's only one. And, but outside of ours, there's, there's, there's many others. So... <clears throat> In reality, uh, Mormonism is a polytheistic religion. And so what we want to do when discussing Christianity with a Mormon is to stress the fact that biblically there is only one God, that there is not multiple gods, there's not an opportunity for there to be more gods or less gods, um, but there is one true and living God. 
And so a good place to start is uh, Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so God here speaking says, listen, there's no God before me, and there's no God after me. Now, of course, we, you, you, you can get off into um, the, the, the word Elohim in the scriptures. The word Elohim, which is translated, the Hebrew word Elohim, is translated God in English. That word Elohim is translated multiple different ways. Sometimes it is translated uh, to refer to uh, God as we know him. But if you're speaking to an Old Testament uh, Jew and you say the word Elohim, meaning God, their mind is not going to run exactly to the same place as you and I would. Um, in English, when we say God, we have a lot of baggage, good baggage, that comes along with it. When you and I say God, we're thinking about the triune God of the Bible. We're thinking about the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We're thinking about who he is, his nature, what he is like, and all of these things. That is what our minds automatically run to. Now, Elohim, in Hebrew... That word does not mean the exact same thing that you and I think of when we think of God. Jehovah, if you remember in Exodus 3, Moses, when he is speaking to God in the burning bush, he reveals himself, I am who I am. Jesus, uh, Moses says, well, who should I say is sending me? And he says, well, tell them that I am. Uh, tell them that I am is sending you. And he reveals his name as Yahweh. And we see all throughout, <clears throat> we see all throughout the Old Testament that uh, Yahweh is revealing himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the, the mighty rock. He is the mighty God, El Gabor. He is all of these other things. And so Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you uh, throw in the vowels and, and, and uh, transliterate that, um, that is who God is, Yahweh, Jehovah. That is what the Jew would think, this is our God, Jehovah, Yahweh. This is our God. This is who we worship. Whereas the word Elohim, which does mean God, um, was used to refer to, yes, sometimes God, but really what it meant is a, a, a spiritual being. And so angels are referred to in the Old Testament as Elohim. Uh, the disembodied prophet who stands before Saul uh, when the witch of Endor is, is, is conjuring him up is referred to as an Elohim. And so Elohim simply means uh, not a, a physical being, but rather a spiritual being. And the greatest of all spiritual beings is Yahweh or Jehovah. And so, uh, again, that's just a whole other rabbit trail that we could go down. But the point of it is, um, when we say, when we read Isaiah 43.10, and God says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And someone brings up another passage of the Bible that says, well, look, you know, there's a reference to a God here, or these gods of the uh, Amalekites or these gods. Uh, the point is there is only one true and living God that Yahweh is distinguishing. He says there is no one else like me. And that's what's going on in Isaiah and many other passages of scripture. We're not referring to false gods. We're not referring to angels. We're not referring to uh, other spiritual beings. We are referring to Yahweh. We are referring to the mighty God, the one and only creator and sustainer of the universe. And to that, we read, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There is no God like Jehovah, is the point of the verse. And so conveying that to the Mormon and saying, listen, Yahweh says, there is no God before me, there is no God after me. There is only one. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 that was, that was a long, uh, sorry, rabbit trail. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. 
Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so God says, hey, listen, I don't know of any other gods that are out there. (laughs) There's only me. It is only me. And so looking at these verses and pointing these things out to our Mormon friends and our Mormon neighbors and saying, look, Yahweh is saying here, I don't know of any other gods that are out there. Are you saying that that he's either lying or that he is just ignorant? What, What is happening here in this verse? Because there's a disconnect between your theology and what the scriptures are teaching. Of course, Deuteronomy 6, through, uh, 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema that the, the Jews would pray multiple times each and every day. There is one God. There is one Lord. And so uh, this, uh, much more can be said on that, and we will, we will get to that verse uh, later on when we are discussing the Trinity. <clears throat> so I, I, I'm not going to go through and read all of these. Um, even pointing out in the uh, Mormon scriptures in Alma and Moroni, again, books of Mormon scriptures, uh, there it, they, they also agree with this idea of monotheism. Uh, in Alma 11, 26 through 29, I'll just read the pertinent part. It says, is there more than one God? And he answered, no, there's only one God within their own scriptures. Moroni 8, 18, for I know that God is not a partial God, neither a changeable being, but he is unchangeable from all eternity to all eternity. So even within their own Mormon theology, Um, there is a disconnect between this idea that God is an exalted man and also this teaching that God cannot change. God is unchangeable from all eternity. And so pointing out these contradictions uh, in theology. So this is a good place to focus when speaking to a Mormon, speaking of monotheism, the fact that there is only one true God. Uh, Secondly, focusing on the deity of Christ. Um, again, going to try to be brief here. I think all of us know John 1, 1 through 3, speaking of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 16, uh, Dan preached about that last week. And uh, I feel bad saying Dan, Mr. Williams, I'm sorry. Mr. Williams preached about that last week. <clears throat> and uh, uh, talking about the preeminence, the superiority, the supremacy of Christ, um, as well as Colossians 2, 9, Titus 2, 13, uh, talking about our... Um, uh, again, referring to Christ as our God. And so uh, you can study those verses on your own and just have those in the back of your mind, uh, thinking through the scriptures and the support of why do we believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity? Uh, why are these things uh, important to us and the New Testament writers? And then, of course, focus on the gospel of grace. Focus on what the gospel truly is. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that we as sinners are unable to do anything to save ourselves. It is by no means a works which we do, but it is only by the grace of God. And this uh, is, as always, in all of these, uh, an important point to drive home. All right, moving on to Jehovah Witnesses. Moving on to Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, A brief history. We have Charles Taze Russell, who's the founder of the sect called the Jehovah's Witnesses. He was born in 1852. Russell was influenced much by the prominent leader of of Adventism, William Miller, And Miller was a well-spoken preacher who predicted that the world would end in 1843, but believe it or not, it didn't happen. And when it didn't, he discovered that there was an an arithmetical, I can't speak, a a math problem. He had a math problem, okay? (laughs) Um, 
He was a well-spoken preacher, unlike others. Uh, so he had a math problem and in his calculations, and he said it would actually end in 1844 when his predictions again failed. Many people were frustrated, and they left the Adventist movement that he had started, but there was a remnant of them who went along with Ellen White, and uh, Ellen G. White, who, of course, was really the big founder of Seventh-day Adventism. Um, and so it was from this group of Seventh-day Adventists split off from uh, William Miller, uh, the Ellen G. White folks uh, that followed her, <clears throat> that Russell joined, but eventually he thought that they were doing things wrong, and he decided to start his own, the, the true branch of Christianity. And so he went off and started his own thing, and much more could be said about that. But Charles Taze Russell uh, was in the Adventist movement, left that, started his own um, group called the Jehovah Witnesses. <clears throat> they believe that they are the only true witnesses of the God Jehovah. So, key doctrines for Jehovah Witnesses. Of course, their sacred writings are the New World Translation of the Bible. How many of you have ever read any part of the New World Translation of the Bible? Yeah, a couple. Um, So that is their Bible that they use, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the issues with that translation here in a moment. Uh, But that is the Bible that if if you're meeting with a Jehovah Witness, that's the Bible they're going to be carrying. Um, And uh, secondly, they're the Watchtower Bible uh, Bible and Tract Society, I don't think that they would say that it is inspired per se, but all of their interpretation of the Bible comes through the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So if they say, well, this is what the Watchtower says, that's how they're going to interpret the scriptures. And so for all intents and purposes, uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, in a sense, is a sacred writing because that is how they interpret everything when it comes to the Bible, scripture, theology. Um, So it is very, very important to them. Now, when you're speaking to a Jehovah Witness, of course, they are going to deny the Trinity. Uh, really, all Jehovah Witnesses are are uh, modern-day Arians. And so if, if you enjoy reading church history and you know about the Arian controversy, uh, the Council of Nicaea, all of those things, um, that is exactly what Jehovah Witnesses are. They believe that Jesus is not Jehovah God. They believe that Jesus is the first creation of God. He is a God. If you read John 1.1, uh, in the New World Translation, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, not the God, because there is a separation there <clears throat> for them. And so they would use many, <laughs> almost all of the exact same arguments that Arius used almost 1,600 years ago to say, Ah, well, Jesus was actually created. He is not truly God. And um, so they would deny the Trinity, which, of course, would entail... Uh, them denying the deity of Christ. They believe that Jesus is created. He's not the eternal God, Jehovah. Uh, Before Jesus came to earth as a man, they believe that he was actually the archangel, Michael. And so Jesus, prior to the incarnation, was the archangel, Michael. Um, And then denying the personhood of the Holy Spirit. uh, Jehovah Witnesses, their theology teaches that the Holy Spirit is more of a Uh, It's like a power of God. It is not actually a person within the Trinity. Um, It is just an impersonal active force of God the Father. And, of course, many other things uh, that could be said there. So how do we share the faith with uh, Jehovah Witnesses? Where is it that we want to go to when sharing the gospel with them? Well, the first and most key place, I think, is to focus on the fact that Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the eternal God. Jesus is not separate. He's not a lesser entity. He is, uh, he is the eternal God. And so uh, just a few of the things that I have written down here. Um, 
uh, if you look, the glory of Jehovah is just kind of a, 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 uh, a short little f- uh, sentence there to kind of, for me in my mind, if I'm thinking when I'm talking to Jehovah Witness, I'm thinking like, okay, well, I want to sh- talk about the glory uh, of God, or I want to talk about uh, the mighty God. And then these other things just kind of are the little drop-down menu that comes uh, to these little tabs that are in my brain. So, focusing on Jesus as Jehovah, the first one there is the glory of Jehovah. So, if you look in your Bible in Isaiah 42.8, <clears throat> there it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I am Jehovah. Right? We know that in our Bibles, when Lord is in all capitals, it is referring to uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, the name of God. And so, uh, does Yahweh give his glory, his own personal glory, to any others? No, he does not. He does not give it to anyone else. Okay? They would agree with that. You would say, is the, is the glory of Jehovah, is it his and his alone? Can he share his glory uh, in, in an ultimate sense with anyone else? No, 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 absolutely not. That is his glory. Okay? <clears throat> John, four, uh, John 17, 4 through 5. Jesus here speaking to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what is this glory that Jesus is asking the Father now that he is here in his incarnated state on the earth? What is the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed? What is this glory that he could have possibly shared with Jehovah God, the Father? And then finishing up with Revelations five thirteen and 14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them saying. So John is exhausting the language here, right? He's saying, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, everywhere, right? He's not, (laughs) he's leaving no rock unturned. And what are they saying? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So all of creation is giving glory to him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb. The Lamb and the Father are receiving the same glory. And verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And so now there is worship taking place to the Father and to the Lamb, who is the Son. And so, uh, looking at the glory of God, does Jehovah share his glory? No, he does not. Who is it that receives the glory of Jehovah? No one. Well, Jesus does. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is a part of the triune God who receives the worship and the glory that is given and a part of the triune God alone. And so much more could be said about each one of these things. Again, you know, you could, you could discuss particularities of each one of these verses and you could start to say, well, like, what about this and what about that? There's a lot of good questions that could be asked and should be asked. The point of all of this brief study is just to give us all a, an idea of places to go and ask those questions, work through those texts on your own, and then say, okay, you know what, I think this, this, this argument here seems to be a little more foolproof, a little more sound than maybe this argument over here, and this is where I want to go to. Uh, the point of this is just to kind of uh, put a bunch of stuff on the table and say, go ahead and pick some and go through and work and look at it on your own, study, work through the passages and make them your own. <clears throat> Uh, secondly, um, El Gabor. So uh, El Gabor meaning the mighty God, the Hebrew term there for mighty God. Uh, going to uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 through 21, starting there, 
It says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. All right? So on Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return and a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So we're talking about Jehovah. This is who they're returning to. They're returning to Jehovah, who is the mighty God. Jehovah is the mighty God. The mighty God is Jehovah. And when you speak to Jehovah Witness, they will agree. Yes, absolutely. Jehovah is the mighty God. The mighty God is Jehovah. There's no question about that. No one else. Is anyone else the mighty God? Is anyone else Jehovah? No, no, no. No one else can be the mighty God. No one else can be Jehovah. Well, that's interesting because in Isaiah 9, 6, the same author of the same book, the chapter before, says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, or El Gabor. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So how is it that whoever this person that we're talking about here is going to be called Mighty God? And of course, you know, you can work through that verse and, and show how it is a messianic prophecy pointing to the incarnation of Jesus. But in that verse, we're not talking about the Father. The Father is not being born. We are speaking of the Son, the Son who is El Gabor, the Mighty God. So how can we have two Mighty Gods? Well, we don't. We have one Mighty God. And that is where Trinitarian theology comes in handy. Uh, thirdly, um, <clears throat> Jehovah as the first and the last. So looking at Isaiah 44, 6, says, Thus says Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Je uh, Jehovah of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So you ask your Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Witness friend, who is the first and the last? Jehovah. Of course it's Jehovah. Very good. Is there anybody else? No, no, no. Nobody else, just Jehovah. Good. Revelations, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. There again, <clears throat> John writing says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So we stop there at verse 17 and we say, So who is John speaking of here? Who is the first and the last? Jehovah. It's Jehovah. That's right. Very good. Verse 18. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. When is it, in Jehovah Witness theology, when is it that Jehovah God, who is the Father, not the Son, not the Spirit, only the Father, when is it that the Father died? Because here, speaking of the first and the last, he says in verse 18, I am living, and I died. Speaking, of course, of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and uh, John goes on to talk more about that. But the first and the last here, now being described as Jesus. So we read in Isaiah, this is about Jehovah. Jehovah alone is the first and the last. And here Jesus is taking that title to himself, that he is the first and the last. And in Revelation 2.8 as well. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last. Who is the first and the last? The Jehovah Witness will say, Jehovah, the Father. Of course not Jesus, of course not the Spirit. But he goes on to say the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so here again, we have a problem uh, within Jehovah Witness theology. Now, uh, many other things could be said um, for, for all of these. Uh, there's many other places you could turn to, and maybe you have four or five or six different things going on in your mind. That's great. Use them. Write them down. Um, have those at your disposal uh, to use in talking and sharing the gospel with Jehovah Witnesses or anybody, anybody else who denies the deity of Christ. But something else that we must be prepared for 
is defending against uh, mistranslations of the scripture um, as, as well as other um, arguments against the triune God. Now, we're not going to get into it today, but if you have, uh, you know, I've had Muslims ask me this question. I've had, you know, I've heard lots, uh, mainly from Muslims, I've had a lot of these questions. But they'll say, well, if Jesus is God, then how, how is it that God gets hungry? Did Jesus eat? Was he hungry? Okay. Yeah, he was. Okay. Can God do that? Oh, yeah. See, you're wrong, Christian. You're, you're silly. Oh, d- does God sleep? When does God sleep? Tell me. Please, Christian. When does God sleep? Did Jesus sleep? Okay, yeah, see, you're a silly Christian. And so there's a lot of these type of arguments that even Jehovah Witnesses can bring from the scriptures. Um, Jesus says that, uh, he's praying to the Father that you are the only true God. So if Jesus says that the Father is the only true God, how can Jesus be the only true God? So there's many verses in which uh, they can turn to, um, maybe not many, but there's some verses that they can turn to and try to use them uh, as an attack against Trinitarian theology and against the deity of Christ. Uh, but in reality, when you dig into the passage, when you study the scriptures, um, those, uh, those arguments are not at all arguments, and many times they actually backfire <laughs> and are very useful um, uh, in, in their own right against, uh, against their own argumentation. And so uh, being able to just think through some of these passages, uh, I didn't write down a lot of them. Uh, I just have two there. Uh, as I mentioned, John 1.1, 1, 1, they will say, in the beginning was the word, the words with God, and the word was a God. And so they'll say, yeah, see, in the Bible here, you know, it's a God. It's not the God. It's, it's different. He's, he's a lesser God. Um, and so, you know, John 1.1, 1, 1, obviously there'd be disagreements and discussion there. Uh, one of their favorite ones to turn to is in the book of Colossian. Colossian chapter 1, verse 15, the passage that uh, Brother Dan preached on uh, last week. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You and I read this in our Bible and we say, yeah, that's good. That's right. In the Jehovah Witness New World Translation, uh, it says that all other things were created in heaven and on earth. And all other things were created through him and for him. Because in their understanding, Jesus is a creation. And so he can't create everything because then that means he would have to have created himself. And so, in the New World Translation, they throw in the, uh, the word other. But the problem is, uh, in their Greek interlinear, uh, so they, uh, a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses have an app, and they can pull up the Bible on their app, and so you could just ask, you could just ask them, be like, well, can you pull up the, the Greek interlinear there um, on, on your app, and they'll just pull, back up, pull it up for you. And in the Greek, they have the words underneath every single one of the Greek words that they use to translate. There's no Greek word. There's perfectly good Greek words, multiple words for the word other. Um, but none of them are there. And in their Greek interlinear, there's no word for other there. And even in their old translation uh, of the New World Translation, they didn't have other there. And so this is a, a purely uh, added conjectural uh, uh, word that has been added uh, based on their theological reasoning and nothing to do with the text. And so uh, there, there, there's no reason to have the word other there, and it's even shown in their Greek interlinear and their older um, translation of the Bible. But beyond that, what they'll say is, well, you Christians, even in your own Bible and even in our Bible, we can at least agree on this. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. You were born right, which means you came into existence. Therefore, Jesus came into existence. He can't be God. God can't be born. Don't be silly. And so, of course, uh, the word uh, firstborn there, uh, prototokos, 
can mean firstborn child. That's absolutely right. It can mean that, but that is not the only use of the word uh, in the Bible or in other uh, ancient Hebrew uh, writings. It is also used multiple times to refer to the one who is preeminent in rank or surpassing all others. One example of this can be found in Psalms 89, Psalm 89, 27. So if you turn to Psalm 89, 27, when someone says, we'll see firstborn, therefore it means created. And it means he was the first creation. That is what it means. Well, Psalm 89, 27 says that I will appoint him to be my firstborn and most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, in discussion here, it is talking about David. God is referring to David here in Psalm 89, 27. And God says that he is going to appoint David to be his firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, David was not a firstborn, right? If we go back to, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Chronicles, First Chronicles 2, 13 through 16, we see the list of David and Jesse's sons. David was the youngest, right? He was actually the forgotten son. <laughs> he was out tending the sheep. So he was not the firstborn of Jesse. Neither was David the firstborn as a king. Saul was the first king of Israel, right? David was the second. And so this is not referring to David becoming a king, and this is not referring to David uh, as the firstborn of Jesse. This is a title referring to his supremacy, that of surpassing all others. David surpassing all other kings, all others. Um, and so uh, there's other places as well that you could uh, look and see how firstborn is used um, not to refer to being physically born, but rather as a title, meaning surpassing all others or the preeminent one. First uh, Chronicles 5.1, Exodus 4.22, um, amongst other places as well. And so uh, merely, the word, uh, merely the term the firstborn, the prototokos, does not mean literally it can but it does not always mean that, and there are multiple examples in the scriptures where it does not mean that. And so putting that into play with all of the other theology that we have concerning Christ, uh, the conclusion that we must come to is that he is the supreme one, that he is supreme over all other creation. That is the point of the text. And of course, many more things could be said about that, but uh, we're going to move on. So other verses that we could talk about that we're not going to get into today because we're trying to cover a lot of stuff. All right. Dan said there's water up here. Oh, good. Um, atheism. Atheism, atheism. Before we move on, does anybody have any questions concerning Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses? Any thoughts? Disagreements? Good to go? <clears throat> Not a Jehovah Witness, no. Muslim, yes, but not Jehovah Witness. And then on the Mormon side, um, I don't know. Some of the guys, like, I, I didn't keep up with them super well, but from things that I had heard down the road, like, it didn't seem like they were as faithful as they used to be, so I don't know. But Muslim's the only one I could say for sure, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, um, I think the question was, um, have you talked to any Muslims or Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons that after talking to them you felt like they were like, they became believers, is that right? Or at least maybe change their mind on certain things? Which one? Or both? Believers, yeah. 
Yeah, no, with, with Muslims, I've had a lot of really good conversations um, where they would bring up silly arguments, like, be like, well, well, don't you know that we Muslims, we really love our scriptures, and, you know, we have memorized, we have many people that have memorized all of the Quran. And have you memorized the whole Bible? How many Christians do you know that have memorized the whole Bible? And you're like, oh, man. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we have so many that have memorized all the Quran. It's like, well, if you look at it, the, the Quran has, and I don't know, uh, this is off the top of my head, I think it's around like 77,000 words in it, whereas the Bible has like 786,000 words, give or take. So the Bible is 10 times as big as the Quran. The, the book of Psalms is over half the size of the Quran. So it's like, well, when, when you compare it with the size, we're talking with a lot, a lot more. And there are many Christians who have memorized, not probably not any of us, but there are many Christians that have memorized the whole book of Psalms, uh, many Christians who have memorized multiple books in the New Testament, the Old Testament. Um, the Jews, many of the Pharisees had to memorize the entire Torah. And so, you know, just silly games, silly arguments like that, um, and, and I've been able to talk to a lot of Muslims where you talk through those type of arguments, and they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, okay. <laughs> and then you move on to, to something else more, uh, more substantial. So, yeah. Anyways, um, any other questions? All right, atheism. <clears throat> so, a brief modern history. Shortly after 9-11, there was a somewhat well-known movement within atheism called New Atheism which was spearheaded by what they called themselves the Four Horsemen, or what they were called, uh, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, uh, which was Richard Dawkins, who was an evolutionary biologist, Christopher Hitchens, British journalist and author, Sam Harris, who is a neuroscientist, and Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher. All of these men wrote several books that blasted religion of any sort, and there was a large following that surrounded them and their speaking engagements, uh, but this new atheism has somewhat died down in the last few years with some divisions and, and death of some of these guys, uh, one of these guys uh, that has cooled down the, the camaraderie that, that once was. H- has anyone here read any of the books by any of those guys? Dawkins, Harris. Oh, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's, no one's going to come up and talk to you after the service. But, <laughs> um, uh, but all of their books, um, you, you know, they... They, they, they say it. They, they, they're, they're well written. We'll put it that way. Their, their books are well written. It's not just some silly, you know, angry guy that's just writing because he hates the idea of religion. But all of these men have a very, very good handle with, with writing uh, well and making their arguments and their cases. And there was a big uh, push for this new atheist movement um, after, shortly after 9-11 um, and the years to follow. But, of course, atheism has been around for, for many years. This is just uh, a little bit more of atheism here in America that affected a lot of Americans. So, when speaking to an atheist, of course, worldview. Worldview, worldview, worldview. That is going to be the key whenever you talk to any atheist, talking and understanding that there is just a difference in worldview at the get-go. The universe that we observe, this is a quote from Richard Dawkins, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect If there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And so, at the end of the day, the universe and everything inside of it is just the result of a, really, a a gigantic accident. There's no ultimate purpose to anyone or anything. We are all just clumps of cells that are here, and there's there's no justice, there's no ultimate reality in that sense. Um, 
Our only purpose, really, is to propagate ourselves. That is as uh, important as it gets. And so I'm not trying to be rude or making a straw man, but this is just how many atheists have described their own position. You know, there, there is no ultimate purpose in this world. We're just clumps of cell. There's no such thing as justice, as evil or good righteousness in that sense. Um, it's, there's just life. And so it's important for the Christian to recognize from the get-go that we are looking at the world through two very different grids. Um, and so we're going to talk about uh, kind of dissecting worldview here in a moment when we get into the um, uh, how to share the gospel with an atheist. But just recognize, of course, we know that an atheist doesn't believe that there's a God, but it goes beyond that. There's, there's, there's the whole grid that comes from believing that there is a God that we have that sometimes the atheist does have, but he's, he's stealing from the Christian worldview. Um, but their worldview is, is, of course, much different at the get-go. All right? Uh, secondly, many times you'll hear the Bible is a fairy tale. I remember... I've heard this so many times, and I have it written down there as, don't you know that the Bible was created by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea? Every time I hear that, I just want to slap somebody in the face. (laughs) It's the dumbest thing in the world. (laughs) Um, The Bible was not created at Nicaea. Uh, This is just a silly comment that is often thrown around as a fact, uh, but it is done so by those who have never done the research on the subject. The Council of Nicaea was called to address the false teaching of Arius, So in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea was convened, and they were coming together because there was this bishop down in Alexandria, Egypt, who was starting to teach that Jesus was a created being, much like the modern-day Arians of today, Jehovah Witnesses. And the church at large was saying, this is not what we teach, this is not what we believe, we need to do something about this. So they came together, they discussed it, they said, ah, this guy Arius is a heretic because that's not what we've taught, that's not what we believed, that's not what the Bible says, and so they said, this guy is a heretic. The Council of Nicaea was about the Arian controversy, that's why it was called. Now, how do we know? How do we know this? Well, you can still read the the canons of Nicaea, or uh, like the notes the official notes that were documented at the time of the council. You can read them. They're there. I've read them. Uh, not only that, but we have multiple people that were there at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Eusebius, Athanasius, uh, Eustathius of Antioch, and these men, amongst others, write and talk about what happened at the Council of Nicaea. And guess what? Nobody ever once mentions that they decided on the Bible there. So the question remains, then where did this come from? Why is it that this claim is thrown around so often? Well, this completely ahistorical idea comes from a mystery thriller novel written by Dan Brown. Not to be confused with Roger Brown, different guy. Dan Brown. And the name of his book is The Da Vinci Code, which maybe you've watched the movie or you've heard of it. But in his book, which was made into a uh, a movie, it has this idea that The Council of Nicaea, you know, created the Bible and yada, yada, yada. And so there's a legend which is about seven, eight hundred years after the fact of Nicaea that Dan Brown gets this from. But none of it is based in historical reality to the earliest sources. It's a legend that comes, uh, again, almost eight hundred years afterwards. And so there's just no historical basis for that. But you will hear that comment made many times. And when you do, don't, don't hit the person. Put your hands down to your side and just say... 
Where'd you get that from? That's interesting. Because, and then you can go on and, and, and tell them the truth, that that is not at all how things happen. So, uh, of course, many other things could be said along the Bible as a fairy tale. You know, speaking to an atheist, they might say, well, you know, the Bible is, you know, it's got all sorts of uh, false teachings or false prophecies or it's got errors or what. So there's many things that could be added under this rubric of the Bible as a fairy tale. Uh, but that was just one of them that I wanted to key in on. And we'll look at some of the others um, the next time we are together when we discuss the authority and reliability of the Bible. So that is Bible as a fairy tale. All right, we have three minutes. Uh, number three, science disproves God. So the question to ask an atheist is, well, what is science? And a good definition that we can give um, is, uh, a good definition would be that science is the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, and the testing of theories against the evidence that we obtain. Okay, they would, I, I would assume most all atheists would agree with this. So science is a way in which we understand the laws of nature, etc. Science allows us and it only allows us to consistently view and understand an already existing world. The scientific method presupposes a consistent and finely tuned world that adheres to laws. We assume that when we, com we, we, we do the same experiment over and over again, that if it is done appropriately, we will get the same results. We believe that there is a, a world in which we live in that is consistent, that it follows rules, it follows laws. And so the scientific method presupposes all of this. Science doesn't disprove God. It only allows for mankind to observe and make conclusions about the finely tuned world in which we live. The atheists must provide their justification of how this finely tuned universe exists in the first place and came into being from nothing. Science doesn't answer these metaphysical questions. And so, of course, we know science is not able to provide coherent answers to metaphysical questions, ontological questions. Um, science provides a consistent way in which we understand the world in which we live. And so science, when someone says, like, oh, well, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. Well, that's good. I believe in science, too. <laughs> but science does not prove or disprove God. Science allows us to understand the world in which we live. And so, um, it, again, much more could be said about that. So, no, we're not going to get there. Okay. Well, next week. Nope, not next week. I'm not here. Neither are you. Nope, you will be here. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, it's dangerous to think off the top of your head. Um, ne next time we are together, we will cover how to share the gospel with an atheist. We'll get into some of these um, ideas and arguments, uh, not arguments in the sense of like, I'm, wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, you're silly, nope, but actual, well, this is why I believe what I believe. Um, we'll look at that, and then we'll get into defending the scriptures, and that will be on October 29th, I believe. So thank you for your attention. And one last thing I wanted to call your attention to on the back, I made a, a uh, reading recommendation. Um, for each one of these subjects that we'll be talking about. And the first book on each of them, uh, number one, is the book that I, uh, that I thought was, well, if I had to say read this one book, this is the one. This is the one you should read. So that's number one, and then the rest are in no particular order. They're just other books there. Um, and if you're like, well, listen, here's the thing. I don't really like to read. Well, you can Google the names uh, of these people, and a lot of them have YouTube videos, and you can listen to hours and hours of good content uh, from people who can say the word arithmetic, arith mathematical, whatever it was, I forget. But um, uh, yes, so hopefully some of these things will be beneficial, and we will look forward to our time together on the 29th. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we do thank you for the time that we have had, and uh, God, I hope that this 
quick and brief and fast discussion regarding other religions would be of benefit, again, to us as believers, that it would help prepare us in our own minds and hearts that we would be able to share the faith with them. But even more so, Lord, that we would uh, know why we believe what we believe, that we wouldn't just take it for granted that we believe in some of these things, but we would truly study them out and, 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 and have the faith as our own. Uh, God, we don't want to just kind of go through life carried by the waves of church and Sunday school and just this is what we've always believed, but Lord, help us that we would own the faith in which you have given to us. We would own this gospel message and make it our own and that we would apply it to our hearts before even going out and sharing it with others. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.